0: Hi,
1: I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
0: Hi, I'm Ed Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
1: So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about Hegel. And we're going to talk about Hegel in relation to the other Germans that we talked about on the last episode, Kant, Fichte, and to some degree in relation to the Germans that come after Hegel, like Weber, Marx, and Nietzsche. And we'll also talk about Hegel in comparison with ancient theorists, because Hegel, of course, advanced a critique of Greek political theory that we'll have some fun with. The main theme with Hegel is the tension between the individual and the collective. Hegel very much wanted to try to find a way to balance individual freedom with the need for some kind of collective life. Hegel thought that the modern German understanding of freedom was a really distinctive and cool new invention. That the Germans had in some way kind of discovered freedom but that this freedom needed still to be properly embedded in some kind of collectivity and that the Germans were equipped to do this. Indeed, the Prussian state was equipped to do this. So how does it work? Well, for Hegel, there are these mediating institutions in the modern state which sit between the individual and the collective And which bend the individual's self interest, subjectivity, back into the collective good. Right? And Hegel's critique of the ancients is that the ancients don't have these mediating institutions. So if the ancient individual becomes alienated from the polis, from the collective political project, that individual has no real reason to make their projects align in any way with the collectivity. And we'll often undertake projects which sit at odds with the collectivity and which the collectivity has no way of reorienting because there are no intermediating institutions that the individual can believe in that point back to the state apart from the state itself. So if there's loss of belief in the state, then there's no other way of realigning. So for Hegel, the thing that's cool about the modern state is that the modern state has all these other institutions, markets, firms, civil society organizations, these things you can, be member, mem- you can be a member of, you can interact with. And so even if you don't really believe in the state, even if the state isn't your main objective concern, you can still be made to behave in a way that's pro-social through these mediating institutions and mechanisms. And in this way, the freedom of the individual can be aligned in some way with the community overcoming the apparent antagonism between these two things. Now, this solution, I think, sounds attractive. But then you start to think about what are the mediating structures in the modern state? What are they? Well, they're markets, corporations, and civil society organizations more generally which can be churches, can be other kinds of of more purely social structures. But a lot of them are economic institutions which come out of liberalism and market society. And it's not clear that those institutions will really reorient the individualistic pursuit of freedom to something collective at least not in a straightforward or obvious way, right? So how do you make that those those things come together? Well, you need a state which is being sufficiently proactive that it can play this reorienting role, right? So there's got to be a significant position for the state in Hegel's theory because the state has got to have this disciplining, orienting role of making sure that these intermediary organizations still lead back to it and don't lead further and further away. This can be a little bit of a pickle, getting the state to play that, that kind of role. And Hegel is often p- pitched as very much a, a dialectician, you know, the very basic version of the theory being you know, a thesis, an antithesis, and then a synthesis, which overcomes the antagonism containing the best elements of both, uh, though Hegel himself does not use that language.
0: Mm. It was Fichte who... Arguably was the pioneer of that of who actually uses the words thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Hegel doesn't use the words, but yeah, seems to be trying to do a version of that dialectic.
1: Yeah. So the question is, does that synthesis that is being proposed here actually work? Mm. And I think the The case for saying that it doesn't work it rests very much on the fact that in practice, we've found that these civil that these mediating institutions, instead of being regulated by the state so that they continue to promote the state, tend to disembed from the political and run off and do their own things. Mm. They tend to pull people further away from the state and instead into other yeah, you know, potentially you could say collective projects, but they're really group projects because they are not full unities in the way that the state is meant to be a full unity of everyone. Uh, they are mini unities which potentially compete with the state. You know, David Runciman often likes to position corporations as potential competitors with the state because they are agents of the same type as mm, the state.
0: Yeah, which is also Hobbes's argument.
1: Yeah. 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 And so these intermediating structures which theoretically bring the individual back to collectivity might bring the individual back into a group, but that group might not be identical with the whole collectivity of the state, right? So you can think of, say, uh, even a trade union, right? A trade union brings you into a unity with other people in your class, but it doesn't bring you into unity with the citizens of the state Mm. writ large. Indeed, the unity of the trade union is in part there to create an antagonism with the unity of the owners Mm. and to split the polity in some way. Similar with uh, corporations, there's a unity that's created in a corporation, but that unity exists in part to also create a disunity between that corporation and its rivals Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: between that corporation's owners and the people who work for it. So I think very often the mediating structures which are positioned by Hegel as having this balancing role instead become the very means by which there is division and further alienation of the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they offer some level of, of groupishness, it doesn't provide the it doesn't create the total disaggregation. That you would get in a thoroughgoingly individualist schema. Mm-hmm. Because the state is still positioned by Hegel as having to manage this and guide these organizations in a way that's pro social, uh, there's still an ongoing struggle under a Hegelian state to try to discipline these mediating organizations. And there's an ongoing struggle by the mediating organizations to break free and run loose and become competitors. And that ongoing struggle doesn't quickly resolve in one way or another. It's a kind of continuing tension. And I think that the faith that Hegel would have in the tension is that eventually it will be resolved constructively. That eventually the tension, insofar as these organizations become pointed away from the state, they will be brought back into alignment with the state. And I think you can see this kind of thought in a lot of uh, left liberalism today in like, for instance, Elizabeth Warren or some of the post-war Keynesians who thought that there could be, through the state, a reconciliation between these groups, these firms, these entities that seemingly point away from the state and the state itself by regulating those organizations to cause them to point back in the direction of the state. Mm. And much of the division between contemporary left liberals and Marxists is whether you think that that's something that can be done. Mm -hmm. Whether the state can play that disciplining regulatory role and create that harmony. Mm. Or whether the state will instead be overcome by the mediating institutions and the things that the mediating institutions are trying to do. right? So if the state is subordinated to the profit incentive, which motivates the mediating institutions, then those mediating institutions in some sense have captured the state or subordinated the state to their goals and purposes, which are no longer meaningfully collective or are no longer meaningfully pitched as collective insofar as Depending on whether the listener believes that there is such a thing as a common good Mm. or just that the common good is a story that is used for legitimating purposes for states. Mm. And I think that that's really one of the pivotal questions in modern politics. And it's certainly the debate between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders that played such a big role in the recent Democratic primaries of whether you can affect some kind of reconciliation,
2: Mm.
1: or you can't. Mm. And I think you could argue that it's it's difficult to decisively prove it because we're still operating under the kinds of states and structures that Hegel describes to a very large degree. What we Mm. still have is a liberal state which attempts to mediate a set of civil society organizations, which are the bridge between that state and the individuals who are otherwise very alienated from the central authority Mm -hmm. and have to be connected to it through those mediating structures. But those mediating structures often take the individual away from that central authority. Mm -hmm. And they do it both economically through the creation of different economic interest groups that have a self-interest that is not collective And I think also there's a status recognition element to this, that a lot of the civil society organizations that we're joining, if they're not economic organizations like corporations or unions, they can be cultural organizations like churches, moral clubs, quasi-political clubs, Mm. where people are getting together with other people who share identity or share Moral values with them. Yeah. And that those organizations and clubs, while sometimes pitching themselves as having the state's interests in mind or the collective's interests in mind, are often engaged in private endeavors that are more about servicing the private needs of the members who make them up. Hmm. Whether those needs are moral or spiritual or recognition based. Hmm. And so the state in all of these different areas is, is governing increasingly patchworks of different groups with the individual more connected to the group than to the state. Mm. And the group often pointing away from the state and the state trying to return the groups back to the state because this kind of Hegelian state cannot directly interact with individuals very well. It's too far removed. It's too alienated from the individual. And this Mm. is an aspect of Hegel's thought that is very similar to de Tocqueville, who argues that part of the problem in France is that there's this oscillation between extreme despotism and extreme pushes for equality, Mm. and that that oscillation comes about because there are no mediating institutions in France Anymore, The revolution liquidated the nobility and the priesthood. The revolution never succeeded in replacing those mediating institutions with anything else. Mm. And so in France, you oscillate between the despotism of the big, big French state and the anarchy of the revolutions where you try to undo that despotism.
2: Mm.
1: With each producing an impulse to return to the other. And therefore, France oscillating between these extremes. And you can see how Hegel, therefore, would position what he's doing as finding a golden mean, Mm -hmm. as finding a synthesis between the extremes of the French who can't settle on a moderate approach. De Tocqueville, a liberal arguing for something more like the English or the American kind of state. Lamenting at the French, at the unwillingness of the French to moderate their equality to make it something which is compatible with a a state, with some kind of political order. Right. By contrast, Hegel, Hegel is arguing that that's something that the Germans have got. The Germans have found a way to do this, where the French have not. And of course, the history of Germany after Hegel very much gives the lie to this idea that the Germans had found a stable synthesis.
2: Right. Yeah
1: but the german state today is still trying to find that stable synthesis and i think if you were to talk to german liberals today they would they would argue that part of what makes germany appropriate for leading the european union is that it has found this way of balancing
2: mm-hmm.
1: private and collective organizations and you see this very much in both in the germany's neo-corporatism historically And also in the way that the German state manages religion and political parties, where political parties and religions are recognized by the German state and often funded by the German state in return for behaving in a manner which accords with the German state's conception of the plural values over which it sits. Mm. And for that reason, political parties, which seem at odds with the notion of freedom which the German state is protecting... Those political parties in Germany get banned. So the German mm-hmm. state says it's defending freedom in part by banning those civil society organizations which don't orient toward the preservation and maintenance of freedom. In this way, the German state is defending the state by banning those organizations or refusing to support those organizations which attempt to undermine or subvert the state. Right. So the German state protects freedom in part by infringing upon it. Mm. And the trick for the German state is to find, in in this view, the right balance between intervention and staying out of it. Yeah, It's, it's supposed to maintain this plurality, but it can intervene to curtail the plurality where doing so is necessary to maintain the plurality.
0: Yeah. Stabilizing politics by suppressing politics in a way, which is what technocracy right. is about,
1: having right. politics the, without at- politics. <laughs> Yeah, the same thing here with, with Hegel and freedom. The German state exists to create freedom in part by making interventions which suppress and abridge it, right? Mm. So the German state exists to create and support churches and co- corporations and so on, but also to prevent those churches and corporations from threatening the freedom which is secured by the German state. Mm. You can see how it's, it's a very careful balance that is attempting to be struck here. And it's very easy to pull too far in one direction or the other. And much, uh, the Germans characterize the French as having just swung wildly between extremes. But Mm. the Germans themselves do end up swinging, especially Mm. post-Hegel. Hegel Hegel is writing in the uh, 18th and, and early 19th century. Germany, after Hegel, goes through World War I, this period of extraordinary uh, of, uh, culture, Kampf, and extraordinary centralization of German state control over the culture. Mm. Then the Weimar Republic, with this very wide pluralism, giving rise to all kinds of movements which are opposed to the state and to the plurality. Mm. Then returning under the Nazis to a very, very rigid German state that's mm. very, very totalitarian. And despotic. And then after World War II, splitting between East Germany and West Germany, mm. with West Germany becoming our, our current federal German Republic, which attempts again to strike the balance and to not fall into the excesses of Weimar.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's that constant back and forth. Now, some of the theorists in this German tradition, like Hayek, for instance, take this conception of freedom, which comes down to us from Kant and read it as the thing which exists in what Hegel would call the mediating institutions, right? Mm. Or what Hegel might call the mediating institutions. So the market, for instance, if the market is the mediating institution between the individual and the state or the corporation is the mediating institution, if we identify freedom as the right to join and participate in a wide plurality of mediating institutions in this way freedom can be identified with the market mm-hmm. and that's basically what hayek eventually does hayek is very much in this german tradition and identifies freedom as the market and so what's the role of the state for hayek for hayek the role of the state is to defend and expand the space in which markets can operate
2: mm.
1: right So this takes Hegel's more inclusive thinking about mediating institutions and focuses it on the market, hyper-focuses it on the market. Mm. And the state then becomes responsible for defending and extending the market as a means of defending and extending freedom. And of course, then any threat to freedom is something which the German state is required to abridge as part of defending freedom. If you take freedom in the market to be one and the same, then any threat to the market becomes something which the German state must intervene to abridge. Mm. And in this way, you can make an argument, as Hayek does, for very, very interventionist states, very authoritarian states, when those states are intervening to defend markets. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see here how this German conception of freedom gets entangled with mediating institutions and therefore with markets, with corporations, and how these corporate entities, which are often pitched as potentially threats to freedom by Marxists, instead become the foundation of freedom for liberals. Mm. Because the more extreme libertarian solutions which try to give the individual genuine, uh, straightforward autonomy with a straightforward claim to be represented by the state, that doesn't work. That level of direct connection between the autonomous subject and the state is impossible because of the scale of the state
2: Mm.
1: and the smallness of the individual. But through the mediating organizations, the individual can claim to be free By participating in a group because the group is more intimate than the state and exists at a closer, nearer level of interaction than the state. It can feel personal when you work for a company, when you join a church, there are people, there's a community, it feels personal. And you exercise your freedom not in not being part of groups or not being part of communities, but by choosing which groups and which communities to be part of, which churches, which company, where to work. This is the way that the liberal state conceives of freedom. And so to not have freedom is to not have the choice about which church to go to, which company to be part of, and so on and so forth, right? Mm. And because the company and the church basically perform the same function, demanding that your company be socially responsible, it's just like wanting your church to sync up with your values. Mm -hmm. Choosing a company to work for becomes like choosing a church to be part of. And the company is a family. It's a community in the same way that the church historically was. And the same goes for the kind of ad hoc political or quasi-political organization, right? joining a, a union joining uh you know, DSA, you know, a, a socialist club, that can be the same. And of course, the effort by the liberal state is to give you some kind of, if you're into politics, some kind of activist organization you can join or be part of that will be like your church or the company that you work for, right? Whichever thing it is, you can value religion, you can value your career, you can value some kind of activism or some kind of social cause. But the goal is to get you to relate to it in this right. through a mediating institution, which is regulated by the state in such a way that that mediating institution cannot threaten the state's order, can, which under a liberal state consists of an order which promotes the German understanding of freedom And the German understanding of freedom is nothing more than being able to choose among mediating organizations to be part of,
2: Mm.
1: right? So you can join all of these organizations, but if your organization is devoted in some way to getting rid of the other mediating organizations and curtailing the plurality of them, then it's a problem. That's why even Hayek thinks that the state should be able to intervene to prevent monopolies from forming, right? Right. Because a corporation cannot annihilate all the other corporations. That's to anu- annihilate the choice among corporations and therefore to annihilate the freedom of the market.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Right? Similarly with religion, your religion cannot be devoted to eliminating the choice among religions. Yeah. Or it's a problem. And the same thing with political clubs. If your political club is oriented toward eliminating the choice among political clubs, then your political club is a problem.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, all of this will give rise to, say, the reaction from, from Marx, who will say that these organizations are maintaining exploitative relations, and that's their real purpose, not to secure freedom. And real freedom would be freedom from exploitative relations, but because that freedom from exploitative relations would involve heavily abridging what kinds of mediating organizations we can be part of not purely on the basis of preserving choice among mediating organizations, but on the basis of substantively making those organizations conform to the value of non-exploitation, the Marxist conception of freedom necessarily is in an antagonistic relationship with this German conception.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. I guess the German conception is about choosing your social role, whereas... For Marx, it's about performing the social role well, and exploitation is a way in which, for Marx, we perform social roles that are, are in some way um, beneath civic dignity or common humanity, or at least aren't sustainable, that, sust- that social roles uh, can't really be performed well or sustainably if they're exploitative. But this isn't really an issue from the, from the liberal point of view which says that it doesn't really matter how you are performing the social role. What matters is that you have chosen this social role for yourself.
1: Right. The, the liberal view doesn't want to make substantive judgments about your choices because it, it's committed just to choice. Hmm. So some of this is more economically oriented, like choosing your social role, choosing your job. Some of it's also more culturally oriented, like choosing your church, choosing your political club. But it's the same German conception of freedom as, as a choice that you're making within a plurality, curated and protected by the state. Mm. Right? So a lot of people join these clubs and expect these clubs to enable them to overthrow the state or to fundamentally change the state or to produce some kind of social or political change. But the structure of this the mediating organizations exist to bring you back to the state, even when it appears like you're going to be able to pursue your own project or your own conception of the good through that mediating organization. So, the function of all these organizations is to eventually get you back in alignment with the state. Hmm. Right? And if you're not in alignment, that's that's a major problem. Weber talks a lot about uh, you know many gods and demons. For Weber, what you're choosing is not necessarily your job, but you're choosing what god to worship, right? You're choosing what your substantive value is. Uh, and for Weber, the problem is that people have a, a lack of maturity. People don't realize that their choice comes ultimately from the state, and that therefore the state must be protected to protect their, uh, to, so that they can continue to make choices. Views it as immature when people try to pursue their own project at the expense of that choice. Right, Hayek similarly says if you try to develop a central plan, that central plan will preclude other people's values. Right, so the main that the. the The way that freedom is understood here is as plurality, as choice, and nothing else. So any conception of freedom which doesn't fit with that is going to be positioned as a threat to freedom, right? So instead of having an an argument about different conceptions of freedom, we have a hegemonic liberal conception, the conception which comes down to us from Kant and then is made politically saleable by Hegel through these mediating institutions, Uh, that conception of freedom can only work by labeling other conceptions of freedom to be not acceptable as freedom and to instead label those conceptions despotic. And that's basically what Hegel does in his consideration of ancient theory. Hegel labels the ancient conceptions of freedom uh, to not be real freedom because they don't recognize the, sub- the subject's choice to identify with value, mm. right? So the subject, by making a choice to identify with value, becomes free in the act of living a life which aligns with the values that they identify with. So mm. it's you're free because you've chosen it, just because you've chosen it, right? Mm. So while you, in ancient society for Hegel, while you are continuing to align with the state, Insofar as you experience yourself as having chosen to commit to the state, you experience subjective freedom. But as soon as you are not committed to the state because you don't have alternative stuff to commit to, you then experience unfreedom.
2: Mm.
1: So for Hegel, because you can commit to to these churches, to these unions, to these clubs, to these organizations, corporations, whatever it is, that enables you to continue to feel free regardless of the extent to which you straightforwardly identify with your state. Mm. Right. As time goes on, the later German theorists who come after are going to worry about whether this works and whether more needs to be done. In the case of Weber, it's going to be, well, people don't seem to have the maturity to recognize where their freedom really came from. They're not appreciative of where their freedom came from. And so, The state, to succeed in disciplining them and and increasing their maturity, the state's going to need to politically educate them about its value and that you need a charismatic figure, Weber argues, to accomplish this task, right? We've talked about that before on the show. Mm. Other theorists are going to take it in different directions, Right. So some theorists are going to say that the state itself inherently is a, is a threat to this plurality, that the state, by curating the plurality, necessarily undermines it rather than protects it, and that what the implication of this German idea of freedom is that the state has got to be done away with, or at minimum, that liberalism has got to be done away with, right? Right. So you get people like Carl Schmitt, who argues that the state is great because the state fights for something, but it has to fight for something and against other things, and that therefore the state can't protect a plurality, it has to choose a side. Then you've got Nietzsche, who says that the nation state is inherently too totalizing, it's too prone to culture kampf, to attempting to dominate wholly the culture, and that therefore we need to return to something like Greek city-states so that there can be an appropriate level of plurality. And that you can choose by choosing which Greek city state to live in and to be a citizen of, you know, by choosing which small political community to be part of, That only then would you really be able to exercise full choice. Mm. Then you've got Hannah Arendt, who's arguing for a plurality, but a, an agonistic competition within a public realm that is peaceful, nonviolent. And which treats all of the other people in, in the political community as partners in collective action.
2: Mm.
1: Right? So here the state is is supposed to, we're supposed to all be committed to this nonviolence, but not because we're committed to the state and to the state's laws per se, but because we're committed morally to respecting each other as partners in collective action. Mm. So you get a lot of different spin-offs in German theory, and we're going to spend more time on these at different points in the show. But I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, we were talking a lot last episode about Kant and how Kant recognized that this individual could not straightforwardly, uh, that this individual autonomy was not straightforwardly compatible with the state. And then we had Fichte mm-hmm. with, with the... Uh, treating the nation as itself the autonomous unit. Mm. With the introduction of mediating institutions, now you can play some really interesting games with the way that we think about freedom. And ultimately, I'd say that the, the legacy of German liberalism as creating this plural space for choice, that that really has its roots in Hegel, and that much of what is followed is reacting to that idea and whether or not that idea is satisfying. Mm. So,
0: yeah, I guess that in, in that sense, Kant isn't necessarily advocating that, um, and which makes sense of your idea that Hegel is starting this concept of choice being uh. Central, because for Kant, being free is being autonomous. It is being separate from what Kant calls the phenomenal world, and being uh, f- independent from that world. But only insofar as you can then follow the dictates of um, of reason, and it is following reason for Kant that is um, that is constitutive of freedom. But that's not too different from what Hegel's saying in his theory of history, because Hegel's theory of history does not really allow room for choice. He says quite categorically in his um, philosophy of world history that there isn't any room for contingency. Um, And he says that uh, the sole, to quote him, the sole aim of philosophical inquiry is to eliminate the contingent uh, or uncertain. Contingency is the same as external necessity. That is a necessity uh, which originates in causes which are themselves no more than external circumstances. Um, In history, we must look for a general design, the ultimate end of the world, and not a particular end of the subjective spirit or mind, and we must comprehend it by means of reason, which cannot concern itself with particular and finite ends, but only with the absolute. This absolute end is a content which speaks for itself, and in which everything of interest to man has its foundation, the rational is that which has being in and for itself and from which everything else derives its value.
1: And Hegel goes on to
0: say how reason, this rational idea, is basically what guides history. Uh, The real is the rational, the rational is the real, is a uh, Hegel quote people always uh, bring up. Puggers for Hegel, uh, history is the development of practices in conformity with reason. And it is reason unfurling through history. But I guess there is a sense in which uh, choice perhaps comes in when Hale says that the, the, the culmination of this rational trajectory of history is in the modern concept of freedom and specifically in the notion of reason being itself a kind of autonomous uh, thing and everyone deciding uh, for themselves um, in alignment with reason. Um, it's a strange kind of a framing of uh, or reframing of some of these earlier notions in modernity of of freedom, of autonomy. But it is definitely an application of those um, in a very
1: general way such that well, yeah. yeah it hasn't gone postmodern yet the, yeah. the way that you yeah I, I would I would very much distinguish between where Hegel's at and where some of those later Germans I was talking about go okay because for Hegel there has to be this reorienting toward the collective that the state is meant to do and this reorienting is a kind of orienting of the of the mediating institutions and the subjects toward this collective project of unfolding the culture yeah right yeah so there's still this disciplining aim mm. at the top of it that the state is servicing right mm. it's not just that the state is servicing its own interest the state is still in some way metaphysically connected to a higher project right mm. Whereas when you get to Nietzsche and Weber and Arendt, now you've got many gods and demons. Now God is dead. Now you don't have that kind of uniformity, right? Mm. But Hegel is still valuing the subjective freedom that he thinks is in part necessary for this unfolding of the culture, mm. right? Right. So by giving people these choices that's going to enable these dialectics to occur in the culture which enables the cultural progression by having these different poles emerge that's going to enable progression so there's still this progress narrative in it which makes it a very very modern rather than postmodern because it's still oriented toward a progressing toward a final place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But of course, what's going to happen next is that idea of a final end or goal is going to fall away, as Nietzsche will point out. God's going to die in the history of political theory. Mm. And once that happens, now the state is much less well positioned to explain why it has to orient all these private projects back toward itself and to its unity. Hmm. It is much less well-placed to argue for doing that. And I think perhaps that's part of why Hegel thought this could work and why it didn't work. Hegel thought this could work because the state was still in some way seemingly connected to a higher purpose recognized by all as a higher purpose. There's still some legacy of God in this theory of a kind of world spirit, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a metaphysics here. Yeah. Just like there is for Kant, who positions God as the anchor point for morality. Once Mm. we get further down this liberal path, that metaphysical anchor point is going to give way. And once that metaphysical anchor point gives way, well, then we have to explain what is the state doing all of this for? Why is the state creating and maintaining this unity? What's, yeah. What function or purpose does that unity serve? Mm-hmm. And political theorists really struggled to articulate an answer to that question. And that means that the private interests, which are still straightforwardly clear and obvious, the goals of the individual organizations start to be taken as self-justifying, Mm. It's no longer necessary to orient the corporations and the churches and so on toward the state's collective aim of building a cohesive unity Mm. because the cohesive unity is not connected to God or to the unfurling of reason through history or anything else like that. Mm. And so increasingly what we'll get after Hegel is this turn toward plurality for its own sake. So I I did not mean to give the impression, and I thank you, Edmund, for bringing this up, that Hegel himself was committed to plurality for its own sake. Under Hegel, we do get this emphasis on autonomy, but the autonomy is still servicing this goal of reason unfolding through history. Right. Hmm. The autonomy starts to be valued for its own sake once... The disciplining force of God, the spiritual, the metaphysical, the moral, uh, fades out entirely. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And that's, I think, a lot of the time when people go back to try to justify where we are, they look at modern political theory and they forget that modern political theory is still all backed up by metaphysics. Yeah, it may not be backed up by highly specific, highly theistic, you know, Catholic metaphysics, but it's still backed up by certain metaphysical claims that there we don't have a consensus around now. Mm. And the question is, well, what happens to these theories once those metaphysics, those metaphysical claims, are gone? I think, especially German theories, a lot of German theories from the modern period have quite developed metaphysics.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: So once you get rid of that metaphysics, then where does the theory go? And it goes in directions that a lot of those theorists who are looking to explain and justify where we are don't necessarily want to go. Then you end up having to read people like Nietzsche, who opposes the project of the modern state, or Schmidt, who argues for a heavily, heavily uh, agonistic, friend-enemy distinction-based state. Or Arendt, who is also challenging the project of the nation state, Heidegger, who wants a whole new way of being in world, Marx, who wants a conception of freedom, which is more about escaping exploitation and domination.
2: Mm.
1: Once the metaphysics goes away, most of the German theorists start to have very different ideas about where this goes. Most of these ideas end up leading away from the kind of modern state, which we still have. So... We have a state which was designed for a purpose that most of us no longer believe in. Hmm. And in the aftermath of that, there have been patch jobs to try to come up with some acceptable substitute. And the, the most that the liberal theorists who have followed have been able to come up with is choice and autonomy, as yeah. its own independent value, instead of choice and autonomy as a way of getting the individual to really be moral because they've actually chosen to be moral rather than just, just doing it unthinkingly, you know, as Kant would put it. Or the individual uh, yeah, in, in embracing ideas, contributing even unknowingly to the unfurlment of reason through history. We now just get the individual's choice being justified for its own sake. And it's relatively straightforward for a lot of people now to value a choice because it was a choice and not ask for any further justification. That's a very peculiarly contemporary thing that we do.
0: But at the same time, it is a consequence of what came before. And it's ironic that Hegel is trying to reconcile, or at least... Stating that what his project is is an attempt to reconcile the individual with the collective when, in fact, as he suggested, what he's doing is paving the way for more elaborate concepts of individual choice. So, in this way, attempts to balance within a set of criteria can often just lead to the deepening of some of the problems that one's trying to remedy. And I think, particularly with this notion of metaphysics, um, there's an extent to which some of the earlier liberals, like Kant, like um, Hegel, insofar as Hegel can be seen as a liberal in his emphasis on freedom, on self-sufficiency, on autonomy being of some fundamental value. These earlier liberals have this metaphysics uh, with Kant that and Hegel. There's uh, God still playing a role in their theories uh, as well as uh, highly developed uh, secular accompaniment to this revision of the post-Roman uh, theological story of it, which developed in Europe. Um, I think that, I mean, there's an extent to which metaphysics is tied to a vision of the collective, because even in uh, Plato, you have the telling of noble lies, the telling of stories, which aren't necessarily the same thick metaphysics that you get later on at the same time they are uh, visions or glimpses of another world and yeah they yeah. tend
1: to be metaphysical stories right because I think one of the things that virtually all of the political theorists you know Hegel and earlier have knowingly or unknowingly run with, is that most people are not going to value the unity which is secured by the state for its own sake without some kind of story. Right. And most of the time without some kind of metaphysical story. Mm. Mm. There, I think if you go all the way back you know, into antiquity, prior to Plato, you can find lots of people uh, just supporting straightforward the state is legitimate because it's connected to the priesthood stories. Uh, Even if it was not very philosophical in the way that it was fleshed out, most of the states throughout history have, to some degree, embraced a metaphysical story as at least one of their legitimation stories, if not the core story.
2: Mm.
1: And we have had a lot of difficulty... In postmodernity, attempting to legitimate states without metaphysical stories or yeah. using some kind of plurality of metaphysical stories which don't agree with each other and which are not necessarily committed to the plurality of which they are a part.
0: I guess one way in which postmoderns might do it is through instead of viewing the state as the aim. Viewing collective action as the aim or viewing some kind of metaphysical ideal as the aim through just thinking about uh, particular material things to get, choosing this or that commodity to buy, uh, choosing this or that, um, whether it's a loaf of bread or a pint of milk or whether it's uh, luxury goods for the rich it's about often uh, in capitalism about choosing particular things that will not give us some kind of yeah enrichment of the soul but just a kind of sustenance or pleasure for the body and i guess the thing about the state that requires metaphysical stories is that the state as aristotle put it lies between beasts and gods and human beings for aristotle as political animals, lie between the uh, bodily beasts and the uh, the kind of abstract uh, gods of pure contemplation. And politics, in a way, is about bringing body and soul together. And that's why the state has this kind of dual role of both administering to people's material needs and also telling stories so that both body and soul can be satisfied and the state is the way in which uh, body and soul are kind of brought together. And I, I guess that that's the thing about the, the, the abandonment of metaphysical stories is perhaps a signal of how the state as a value, as an ideal, is becoming uh, less of a thing in post-modernity, partly because of this process which was initiated much earlier um, after Machiavelli um, and others drew this separation between politics and morality. Morality with Kant got internalised to the private sphere with the individual, uh, thereby drawing a further separation between the individual and the collective, the subject and the state. And then with Fichte, the individual uh, as the supreme ideal, uh, got applied back to the state with nationalism, seeing each nation as an ego, as an individual. And then with Hegel, you get a even more general view, not just of nations, but of individuals making choices uh, in civil society in a way that, Is trying to reconcile uh, these these polar opposites of Kantian individualism and Fichtean nationalism, but in fact, uh, because Hegel is just roaring on, or at least though he's referencing ancient thought, he's operating in a context where there are these liberals who he's trying to, or 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 these uh, at least these kind of modern individualists who he's trying to synthesize. But because he's synthesizing these modern ideas, the synthesis itself is modern and doesn't escape uh, some of the problems into which moderns fall, which is the individual kind of gets a gets ahead of the state, and the state, instead of becoming being a unity to which individuals aspire to partake in, the individual becomes the kind of mini-state. The the, the, the the individual becomes the God to which society is oriented. And I guess that's what post-modernity is, the culmination of that process of individualization, which starts off with the need to balance the individual with the collective, balance the individual with these metaphysical stories, which are kind of a signal of the uh, the latent role of collective institutions and collective ways of thinking. But once you get into this th- thoroughgoingly postmodern condition of, uh, of the grand narrative being dropped and individuals' choices being the sole gods that we pursue, you, you, you start to get into a situation where some of those processes which earlier liberals observed are now reaching their point of culmination, which is the utter death of all things eternal and spiritual and moral, and the triumph of all that is material and beastly and base about the human condition. When we lose any touch point with any higher ideal, Because we've lost politics, because politics was a thing that helped bind us to ideals, to the good. But without politics, all we have is our material wants and needs. And when you drop politics, that's what you get. And that's the world we live in.
1: Well, you can see the, the pull of this, because when the state is heavily curating the stories, then you don't get a breadth of different stories. You get one story. It doesn't have to be a metaphysical story about God. It can be a you know, Roman legitimation story about the, the state uh, and the glory of the Roman state.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, even Even if you have a very inventive state like the Roman Empire, which uses lots of different stories to meet different needs – You're still going to be restricted in the set of different ideas that you can come up with by the fact that the state is going to only put out those ideas that are helpful to it. Mm. And with this, you're switching from the state being the source of the culture and putting out the ideas that are helpful to it to the state being a break on the culture and filtering out ideas that are too harmful
0: that's mm. the kind
1: of shift that you get here. Yeah. And you can see the appeal of this because it does allow a greater plurality of different ideas. Yeah, The trouble is that by making these these meaning of life stories mm. plural, one of two things happens. Either we continue to take these meaning of life stories seriously, in which case they can evolve to become too different from each other, conflict too sharply, and become the basis for massive, massive killing adventures like World War II. Hmm. Or we can stop really believing in any of them, and they just become matters of taste. At hmm. which point we then devolve into what I think you were just describing, which is a world where all we really care about is having our luxury luxuries taken care of, our, right. our bronze in the Platonic sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pleasures, pleasures being taken care of. And we wouldn't lift a finger for any of these ideas because they're just pretty things to look at, you know, as Richard Rorty uh, calls them. You know, they're they're just beautiful, uh, ironic stories. Mm. They look they look great, but you you they're not to be taken seriously. Mm. Their philosophy becomes red like fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that. Yeah, you ha- you have a choice, but your choice at that point is not actually among things to believe in. You don't have the choice to believe in anything because by giving unlimited choices in what to believe in, you don't have belief. Hmm. Yeah. And in this way, freedom kind of extinguishes itself. Yeah. 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 That. That. Or at least this conception of freedom extinguishes itself.
0: Yeah. Right. Because you can't really. I mean, you can't even really make meaningful choices if there is nothing to choose from.
1: Or if what you what you would call the choice has been reduced from a metaphysical system in which one believes to a novel that you read and you think about for a while and then you move on.
0: Right, right. So, so we lose anything meaningful to choose between. And, also- and then we get
1: existentialism and nihilism and all of that, which is not necessary necessarily pleasant for us, uh, when we're not really satisfied by the material existence, we're not satisfied by the very comfortable beast existence, and we want elements of the, the spiritual. Yeah, and we can't get them. And any element that we look at, no matter how beautiful it is, we can't really believe in because we've been. There are so many different beliefs being spread all over the place that none of them, none of them has pull. Yeah. Yeah. So it's either that they all have pull and then we fight, or none of them have pull and then life becomes meaningless.
0: I guess part of the problem came out of the fact that what some of these earlier modern thinkers were doing was trying to, insofar as they were trying to reconcile the individual with the collective do so in a way that put the individual at the centre of the universe. So instead of trying to balance the collective with the individual, the mission became, uh, now we've got the individual, how do we balance the individual with the collective? And that's a different question entirely from the first, because uh, while if you're just trying to balance the collective with the individual, you are directing and channeling or uh, perhaps moulding the individual to partake in a greater unity uh, in which we we join together for a common cause or around common institutions. Uh, If you're just trying to balance individual autonomy with some remnant of collective authority, then you're shaping the collective authority around the individual autonomy. So instead of making, fashioning the individual in the image of the state, we start fashioning the state in the image of the individual. And, uh,
1: and since yeah. there are as many different individuals as there are drops of rain, mm. once you stop trying to fashion individuals in a way which is coordinated around some kind of collective unity, Hmm. Uh, then the types of individuals that you have and the interests and values of the individuals you have proliferates to the point where in trying to make the state and the image of the individuals, you can't make a state.
2: Yeah. Or you yeah. can only
1: make a state by telling so many different stories that all of the stories fall apart. Yeah. yeah. At which point, the only reason people put up with the order is because they're comfortable. Yeah. If they stopped being comfortable, they would have no further reason to believe in it. But if the order is managed to make them sufficiently comfortable, if it takes sufficient care of those beast bronze needs, then they can't be motivated by a desire for honor or a desire to defend the good. Those things can't motivate them to fight.
2: Hmm.
1: They can only be motivated by disturbances to their comfort. You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, right now, yeah.
1: there, there are a lot of people out there saying that Donald Trump poses an authoritarian threat to the state, but they're not using violence or, or rebelling or doing anything like that. They might if, you know, if the president got rid of their internet
2: mm. or
1: told them they couldn't go to the supermarket or told them they had to wear masks. You know, yeah. we, we get a lot of, of angry, you know, often violent protests from people over the coronavirus restrictions because they're restrictions on your comfort mm. and on your ability to live a comfortable life. Mm. We get protests in response to people being killed because that's a, you know, a, an intervention into someone's ability to live and to live comfortably. The iron and the bronze are the basis for demonstration. Mm. But the moral values themselves never become the basis for rebelling against the state. Yeah, Because no one really believes in them enough to do that. They're just something to look at.
0: Yeah. It's, it's kind of ironic that Hegel, by putting reason front and center um, in the driving seat of history, lost reason in the end or the process which Hegel was describing and anticipating led to the end, or as uh, Max Horkheimer puts it, the eclipse of reason, where we start to lose reason because of its allegiance to a kind of individualism that reduces reason to mere means, ends instrumental rationality. It's kind of part of a vicious cycle that we get between the most extreme utopianism, uh, such as in Hegel's theory of history, where history develops according to uh, reason with the most vulgar realism of the market um, and of the instrumental calculations that go into that market. And yeah, in, in oscillating between those extremes, we lose the public realm where we can try to bring utopian reality into some closer union. Um, and regardless of <laughs> your sympathies with uh, individualist or collectivist philosophies, it is in practice the case that the commitment to liberal individualism has led us to a situation where we can do nothing but oscillate violently between these extremes of, on the one hand, utopias, which can never be realised in the real world, Uh, and on the other hand, the as Hobbes put it, "nasty, brutish, and short" condition, uh, which characterizes uh, many people's lives in the market system in which we live, and in the more general social consequences of that system.
1: Yes, we go back and forth between economics and morality, yeah. and we lose politics; politics gets yeah. lost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well and and the thing is we can we could say this but well while, while it can be said it is not something that can be widely believed in anymore we we can't seem to get people to believe in the importance of creating and maintaining cohesive unity at the level of society uh, that doesn't seem to be something that most people value Hmm even though everything good in their life, whatever they value, whether it's pleasure and luxury, whether it's the ability to pursue philosophical truth, whether it's their standing in the communities that they're a part of, whatever it is that you value in life, that comes from having functional collectivity. Mm. And that means that we have to care about yeah. what's necessary to build and maintain that functional collectivity. And when we have it, we can then argue about what we want to do with it and what kind of spaces we want to create within it. We can have those political arguments. But if we just go back and forth between talking about what economics demands and talking about what morality would like us, you know, what we would like to demand, mm. we aren't going to be able to fashion any kind of decision-making process that enables us to do anything. And that means we'll just be carried forward by the momentum of economic imperatives Mm. with moral protests that never become real because they have no public space in which to be issued. Mm. They are only issued in the mediating institutions that are themselves always returning to the maintenance of the choice systems, mm. the market. And and that's really what the market is. The market is the choice system and therefore mm. uh, the freedom system from this point of view.
2: Right, right.
1: We just keep ending up back there. Yeah, And that means we keep catering to the beast needs because the market operates through a Darwinian selection mechanism that's based on survival of the of the fittest
0: yes yeah yeah
1: no other value can really come in except in idle chatter and that just becomes a form of cultural entertainment like watching a movie or going to an art gallery
0: yeah and it's of course easy to say well this is the only freedom we're ever gonna have we're in this system we might as well um live with it which is uh to a significant extent. Um, True insofar as there isn't any golden alternative on the horizon, uh, but it's worth remembering that there have been different conceptions of freedom in the history of political thought and that this modern conception of freedom, which Hegel says, is the culmination of the world spirit through history. It is the rational uh, end of history. And our ultimate purpose. There have been other concepts of freedom, such as those which existed in the thought of Plato and Aristotle, for whom freedom wasn't the ability to have some kind of um, radical autonomy of choosing different social roles, but of regardless what social role one performs doing the social well doing this social role in as virtuous a way as possible which is to say performing social roles in a way that is not done just for the sake of money or self-interest but is done in a way that reflects the common good and doing activities not just for oneself, but for others and for the collective as a whole. And that kind of vision of freedom, freedom as a kind of political, moral value, something which really isn't basically economic in nature, because what commercial freedom is, is a way of trying to abstract from any sense of collectivity or morality. It has
1: some economic prerequisites. Yeah, it you know, does. It, the, the, yeah. the kind of freedom which the Greeks and the Romans envision, you need the resources, the education, the time mm. to contemplate how the good applies to your craft yeah, or techne, right? And then you oscillate between contemplation and, and, and doing. Yes, And then you also get to participate politically in making decisions about what kinds of crafts uh, will be available, what kinds of roles will be available, Mm. and so on. So there's political participation, the switching between ruling and being ruled, and then the switching between contemplating and acting. And acting in the techne, one of which is the ruling techne, but other technes, other crafts are also potentially crafts that can be done. Mm. In this virtuous way. But to do this, you have to believe in the good. And the Greeks associated the good very much with the city. Mm. yeah. And the Romans associated it with the republic. Mm. And it was straightforward for those ancients to identify the good with the polity. And therefore, when you're contemplating how to do your craft well, it w- you were contemplating how to do your craft in a way which would service the polity, which would service everyone. And while it was, of course, not the case that you had an objective godlike perspective, which would enable you to know what was really in the interest of everyone, thinking about it, trying to do it would cause you to act better Mm. and cause you to make better choices. But to believe that, you have to be willing to believe in the concept of the good enough to be able to say that it's helpful to try to think about what it means to do something well, even if you can't get at it and grab it and hold on to it. Mm. You have to believe enough in the concept of the good to get there. And the trouble is, we've lost that. Yeah. We don't believe enough in the concept of the good to even begin to use that as an anchoring point. And so our conception of freedom has got to be compatible with no substantive commitment. And that means our conception of freedom has got to be compatible with what is otherwise nihilistic beliefs in nothing in particular. Mm. Yeah, and that's yeah. our trouble. The only substantive value we have left now is choosing among meaningless things. Mm. The only value that we're prepared to defend is the choice.
0: Mm yeah
1: which is I guess a cent- even though we have devalued all of the things that we're making choices about,
0: yeah, I guess it's been reduced to a money relation because what is cho- choosing between meaningless things but valuing the exchange value, uh, the value at which goods are bought and sold, um, you know rather than valuing things for their use value for the kind of things which these goods can do for one's virtue or for the collective as a whole. Um, and I guess that's the situation we're in where Mm. we're in a situation where, uh, we as a society, as a collectivity have lost the love of the good of the collective. Um, in Plato's framing, the love of wisdom and the love of honour, at least collective honour, are in a sense dead and what is there?
1: Yeah, because these are things that the individual has to be held to, and the individual yeah. no longer wishes to be held to anything yeah. and wishes to be the judge of all value. But in being the judge of all value, because there are so many individuals, so many different judges, uh, value is lost. So the individual becomes the judge of the desert. Mm. The individual to get sovereignty has destroyed the kingdom over which the individual would be sovereign and is left to rule over a wasteland. Yeah. Yay!
0: And so in this sense, hyper-individualism leaves the individual with no freedom at all, with no true freedom, with no genuine choices, and with no real power at all. Individuals are powerless. Are cogs in a machine yes. as a result of the hyper individualism which this market system has produced?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we continue to picket the German idea of freedom. Maybe <laughs> that's what this whole series of episodes about Germans is. It's it's picking on the German idea of freedom. Mm-hmm. I think next time we may do some nature. We may do some Nietzsche with somebody. We were going to do Hegel with Marx this episode, but there was so much to do with Hegel, we just uh, didn't didn't give Marx a whole lot of independent time. Yeah,
0: and it would need a lot more, I guess. Discussion. It would need a lot more of the theory of. You just yeah. can't.
1: You can't do both yeah. in.
0: And of the theory of history of specifically, and of the notion that Hegel has of ideas being in the driving seat of history, and questions over whether this is a particularly realistic vision of history or whether there can be more realistic understandings of how history progresses.
1: And that's the part of Hegel which took a back seat in this episode because yeah. we didn't decide to lean in on the Marx. Right. We instead focused more on Hegel's interactions with the German tradition mm-hmm. and his contrast with the ancients. Mm-hmm. So I think with all that, all that said, we should wrap up, if, if yeah. you're good to wrap up, Edmund. Yeah. So, uh, thank you guys for listening, uh, for making the free choice to listen to this podcast. Mm. And do feel free, if you want to support the podcast, to come on over to patreon.com slash politicaltheory101, all lowercase, no space, to support the work. Uh, and in any case, have the best day you can in the world that we live in.